Welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is our 10th podcast concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, veganism as the moral baseline of the animal rights movement, the important relationship between the rights of humans and non-humans, and the principle of ahimsa or nonviolence in all of our advocacy efforts. Well, today is November 1st, World Vegan Day. Happy World Vegan Day to you all. In this commentary, I would like to reflect a little bit about the state of the vegan movement in 2009. There's good news and bad news. The bad news is the large animal welfare groups, which still dominate the scene, have done a great deal to marginalize veganism and to reject it as a moral baseline. And they've done this for both theoretical and practical reasons. The theoretical reason is that these groups have in large part bought into the idea, uh, the welfareist idea, that animals don't have an interest in their lives. That is, they don't care that we use them, we, they care about how we use them. So that the problem is suffering, the problem is not death, the problem is not killing them. We don't impose a harm on them per se by killing them according to the welfareist ideology. We impose a harm on them when we make them suffer. So the the primary moral issue for the welfareist movement is reducing suffering. Veganism is viewed as a way of reducing suffering, but it's viewed as no different from any other way of reducing suffering, including the welfareist campaigns that are promoted by these large organizations. Now, it's important to understand that this idea that animals don't have an interest in continuing to live and that they only have an interest in not suffering is an idea that goes way back to the foundation of the animal welfare movement in the 19th century. That was an idea that was accepted back then. It was central to the welfareist uh, uh, philosophy back then. The welfareists were not arguing that we ought to stop using animals. They were arguing that we ought to take animal interests in not suffering. uh, 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 We ought to give greater weight to those interests in not suffering. Uh, in using animals, but they weren't arguing against uh, the use of animals altogether. That welfareist idea is present today in the work of Peter Singer, who has been very, very influential in the uh, in the animal movement. And Singer's views are really, in, in certain ways, no different from those of Bentham's and the other utilitarians of the 19th century, in that Singer maintains that, for the most part, animals don't have an interest in continuing to live, that we're not imposing a harm on them per se when we kill them. The problem is, is we make them suffer when we raise them, and we make them suffer when we kill them. But if we can reduce the suffering... Uh, involved in raising them and we can kill them in a relatively painless way, then we don't necessarily do anything wrong by bringing them into existence and using them for our purposes. Indeed, he argues that uh, if you're really a conscientious omnivore, if you're really careful about uh, uh, eating animal products from animals who have been uh, really humanely raised and killed, then uh, you're arguably not doing anything morally wrong. I believe that that view is accepted by most of the large animal organizations. Uh, and, and, and therefore, it, is, it, it should come as no surprise that they would not see veganism as a moral baseline because the only issue is reducing suffering. And so to the extent that veganism reduces suffering, that's fine. To the extent that cage-free eggs reduce suffering, that's fine. To the extent that limits on the gestation crate reduce suffering, that's fine. It's just a question of reducing suffering. It's not a question of... Of, 
of there being anything wrong per se with killing and eating or using or wearing animals. And so it, it, it should come as no surprise. If that's, the, if that's the, the philosophy that you accept, then it would come as no surprise that you would not see veganism as a moral baseline. As a practical matter, these organizations function by, by promoting welfareist campaigns. These organizations function and do all of their fundraising by promoting campaigns that are going to supposedly reduce animal suffering and make animal exploitation more humane and make animal exploitation more morally acceptable. You cannot, as a practical matter, promote animal welfare reform and tell the public that there are better ways of animal exploitation, morally acceptable ways of exploiting animals at the same time you promote veganism as a moral baseline. It's simply not possible as a practical matter. So for theoretical reasons and practical reasons, these large animal organizations uh, marginalize veganism and certainly do not promote veganism as any sort of moral baseline. They frequently will uh, tout vegetarianism and promote vegetarianism, as I've argued before. There is no logical distinction between flesh and other animal products. I mean, there's no, there's no logical or moral distinction between flesh and other animal products. To say that you know we shouldn't be eating meat, but that dairy is different, is simply wrong as an empirical and a moral matter. I mean, animals used in dairy production are kept alive longer. They're treated every bit as badly, if not worse, than animals used uh, for meat, and they all end up in the same slaughterhouse anyway. As I've said a million times in my life, there's probably more suffering in a glass of milk than there is in a pound of steak. That's a million and one times I've said that, uh, and I really believe that. And I think that it's wrong to promote vegetarianism as as uh, morally distinguishable from being an omnivore, really. Uh, and, and yet this is the position that a lot of, uh, of these organizations take. They'll talk about vegetarianism. They won't talk about veganism. And I don't think that uh, vegetarianism is a morally defensible position. And they also promote veganism to, uh, as, a, as a very difficult thing to do. I mean, they, they characterize veganism as a very difficult thing to do. And I think that's, that's, that's terrible uh, because when you have animal organizations promoting or characterizing veganism as an extreme thing, or uh, you know it's very very difficult to do. Uh, then you're just reinforcing uh, a, a lot of uh, ideas that I think are wrong. Veganism is actually a very easy thing to do, and uh, we ought not to use the word vegan and difficult in the same sentence, except to say being a vegan is not difficult. But we should never ever characterize veganism as difficult uh, because that doesn't encourage anybody, uh, and it's wrong. And uh, that's, uh, that's an even more important reason. The good news is that although the large organizations have done a lot to marginalize veganism, the large organizations are no longer the only players in the animal movement. There is largely as a result of the Internet and the ability of people to communicate uh, outside of the confines of the large groups which for many years controlled the, uh, the communication amongst animal advocates, there is developing an abolitionist movement in the United States, in Britain, all over. Uh, and um, that movement has as its central tenet the principle of veganism. Veganism is the moral baseline of the abolitionist movement. The abolitionist movement rejects animal welfare reform. It rejects single-issue campaigns. Basically takes the position that the primary form of animal activism ought to be creative, nonviolent, vegan education. That we're never 
going to see any significant change until we shift the paradigm away from the status of animals as property and towards animals as non-human persons. And that's never going to happen as long as most of us think of eating or otherwise consuming animals as something as natural as breathing or drinking water. So we really need to shift the paradigm. The only way that's going to happen is through creative nonviolent vegan education. So the abolitionist movement, which rejects the notion that we can reform animal torture, that we can make animal torture better or kinder or more gentle. We want to eliminate animal torture. And that the the foundation or the basis for doing that is shifting the paradigm and getting people away from the notion that animals are things for our benefit, things for us to use, that they are things, period. That veganism is the rejection of animals as things. It's the rejection of animals as chattel property. And it's the acceptance of the principle of nonviolence in our daily lives. Now, we can talk about nonviolence as a theoretical matter, but as long as we're eating, wearing, or using animals, then, then we, may, we may talk about it as a theoretical matter, and you know what? It's just that. It's a theoretical matter. If you take nonviolence seriously, nonviolence begins with what you stick in your mouth three times a day, and what you wear on your body, and what you put on your body. And, and those of us who take nonviolence or the principle of ahimsa seriously, I think it's imperative to recognize that veganism is a necessary part of ahimsa, that you can't separate veganism from ahimsa. Veganism may not be the whole part of ahimsa. It may not tell us the whole story of nonviolence, but it tells us an ascent, it gives us the essential building blocks of that story. So we can always go further and we need to be thinking about uh, extending human rights and about uh, justice for non-humans uh, who are still uh, denied justice in all sorts of ways. We still live in a world of racism, sexism, homophobia, and all sorts of injustice uh, that we need to address. But, um, but veganism is certainly an essential part of Ahimsa. We cannot separate them. And the abolitionist movement accepts that. And it's growing, and it's growing daily. And that's the good news. The good news is that there is an emerging group of people all over the world who take veganism seriously and who recognize that veganism is not uh, simply a way of reducing suffering. It's, it's that, but it's a foundational principle of justice and morality. Animals are not here for our purposes. They are not things for us to use. And it doesn't matter whether we treat them well or don't treat them well, we have no business bringing them into existence and using them for our purposes at all. And just as uh, you know, uh, uh, humane rape doesn't make rape okay, uh, humane child molestation doesn't make child molestation okay, humane animal exploitation doesn't make animal exploitation okay. To say to the contrary is to maintain a speciesist position and the abolitionist position rejects speciesism altogether. Okay, so we've talked about the bad news and the good news. And I want us to be optimistic because I, I think that that optimism is justified. I'm very excited about uh, where we're going to be when, uh, when I do the podcast in 2010. I think we're going to be further ahead than we are. We certainly are further ahead today in November 1, 2009 than we were November 1, 2008, in terms of the emerging abolitionist movement. In the past year, we've seen a number of very, very fine advocates emerge as spokespersons for the abolitionist position, and I'm really very excited to see what's going on all over uh, in, in New Zealand, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, in France, in Germany, 
all over in China. Um, in it, it's happening in Turkey. It's happening all over the place. Uh, and I'm sure I've, I've left in Spain. I, and I'm sure I've left out uh, many places. But it's happening and it's emerging all over. And and that's just been in the past year. So I'm very excited and optimistic about where we are heading. Uh, I, I think that it's a shame, unfortunately, but it's understandable that the animal welfare groups, they're, they're, they're doing something different. They're doing something fundamentally different. And as I've said before, I do not in any way question the sincerity of the people who are involved in those organizations. I just think they're wrong. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't think you can defend the idea that animals don't have an interest in their lives for the reasons that I've expressed both in my books and in the blog essays and on earlier podcasts. Uh, and, and I think that um, animal welfare simply doesn't work for the reasons that I've explained. And I want to talk a little bit about that because one of the issues I deal with every day, um, sometimes more than once, is uh, I will have discussions. I get lots and lots and lots of emails. And for those of you that I don't respond to, I'm really sorry. There's just one of me. And um, I uh, everybody who helps me basically um, does so largely on a volunteer basis. And um, and so I don't have time to respond to all of the emails that I get because I get uh, close to 200 basically a day. That's what I average. And uh, and I don't really have time to deal with all of them. And I'm very, very sorry. I want to apologize because I can't uh, write to all of you. Uh, but one of the things that I deal with a lot is people will write and say, look, I accept that veganism is the moral baseline. I am a vegan and I promote veganism, but I'm really concerned about the suffering of animals now and I do not see how we can avoid uh, endorsing at least some welfare reform uh, as, uh, as something we really need to do morally because we've got to do something about the suffering of animals today. I understand that view. I understand that view completely. I think it is important for us to recognize that however intuitively appealing that idea may be, the idea is simply wrong. That animal welfare reform isn't going to address the problem of animals suffering now, not in any significant way. And let me explain why. And in order to explain why, I want to go back a few weeks. A few weeks ago, I talked about the problem of, of violence. And, and uh, I talked about those animal advocates who promote violence. And one of the points I made was putting aside the fact that violence is inherently wrong, in my view, it doesn't make any sense as a practical matter because the idea that of promoting violence against institutional users doesn't really make a great deal of sense because those institutional users are simply responding to consumer demand. So it doesn't really matter whether you put 10 slaughterhouses out of business, if the demand is there, that supply will be met by other suppliers. So it doesn't really matter. You can close down all the, the, the vivisection supply houses you want. It doesn't really matter. If there's still a demand there for animals, if the public still supports vivisection, then that demand will be met by other suppliers. And so then, you know, the, the, the problem of animal exploitation is a problem of demand. It's not a problem of supply. The people who are supplying animals, the institutional users that are supplying animals, whether they're meat animals or whether they're dairy, you know, whether they're dairy products or whether it's vivisection animals, it doesn't really matter. The, 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 the corporations that are providing them, they're indifferent to how they use their money. I mean, basically, they will put their money where they can get a good return. 
And as long as it's economically feasible to exploit animals, there will be corporations that will exploit animals. As long it, and, and, and it's economically feasible as long as there's a demand. So the problem is demand, the problem is not supply. And so what I was trying to explain in the earlier podcast is that promoting violence doesn't make a lot of sense because it focuses on supply and not demand, and the problem is demand. Similarly, animal welfare, understood as trying to get institutional users to change their practices or trying to get laws that will force institutional users to change their practices, again, focuses on supply and not demand. The institutional users would provide a higher level of welfare if there was a demand for a higher level of welfare. But there isn't a demand for a higher level of welfare, not, not in any significant way. The public isn't demanding significantly higher welfare standards. So what, what happens is the animal welfare movement attempts to put pressure on institutional users to improve animal welfare and the result is that institutional users in that context will only give in to and change, you know, they'll give in to those demands and make changes that are economically justifiable as far as they're concerned. That is, they'll make those changes that are economically beneficial and that make the production process more efficient. And if you look at the history of animal welfare, that's largely what animal welfare reform has been. It's been changes that have actually increased and improved production efficiency. You can go back as far as you want, look at any examples you want. You can look at the modern examples. Look at the modern look at the, the campaigns that we have now, the welfare campaigns that we have now. They are largely based on economic efficiency. The veal crate, for example, one of the reasons why there is a transition away from the solitary veal crate situation is because the veterinary costs of animals raised in that situation are considerably higher than the veterinary costs of animals that are raised in a more social setting. Similarly, gestation crates are economically inefficient. You can get greater production efficiency out of sows by using alternative methods to the gestation crate, and they exist. Similarly, the controlled atmosphere killing of poultry is a much more economically efficient way of killing poultry. And the and I don't care what campaign you know you want you want to look at. Basically, they are all the same in that um, these campaigns, when they are focused on the institutional users of animals, when what we're trying to do is to get industry to change. Industry is only going to change to the extent that it's economically efficient for them to change. They can't do anything other than that. I mean, think about it for a second. If if you have a um, you buy a pig, you buy the pig for a dollar, and the pig costs you 50 cents to raise. All right, well, then you've got to sell the pig for at least $1.50 to break even, and you've got to sell the pig for more to make a profit. Okay, now somebody comes along and says, I want you to do something which is going to increase the cost of taking care of that pig to $2. So it's going to cost you a dollar to buy the pig, and I'm going to increase your, your costs of caring for the pig by 50 cents. It's now going to cost $2. Well, the institutional user is not going to do that unless the institutional user can pass that cost along to the public. To the extent that the institutional user can't 
pass that cost along to the public. It would make no sense for the institutional user to do that. And the institutional user is not going to do that. And by and large, the political process is not going to force the institutional user to do that. The only way you're going to get welfare changes that go beyond the minimal level that we see now, I mean, basically, welfare reforms are limited to that which is economically efficient. Institutional users will implement or, or uh, uh, they'll implement only those changes that, that result in benefit to them. Okay, or in situations where they can pass it along, which they, they basically uh, uh, can't in any significant way. The only way that's ever going to change is by educating the public to demand significant welfare changes. So the only way you're ever going to see, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's the supply-demand distinction. Animal welfare focuses on supply. But the, the change that you can affect at the level of supply is limited by, by, by something called economic reality, the world, the, the reality of markets and the reality of animals as economic commodities. So the level of protection is always going to be constrained by, by those realities. The only way, if you focus on the supply side, the only way you're ever going to change the situation is by changing demand and, and educating people about demanding higher welfare products. So rather than talking about cage-free eggs, you can educate the public about demanding that all eggs come from uh, animals that are in a farmyard and that have you know access to sunshine in the outside all of the time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that would increase the cost of food dramatically. And, and if you succeeded in educating people so that they were willing to reevaluate their relationship with animals that they eat in such a dramatic way, why would you not educate them about veganism? I mean, if they've gotten to that point, the only way you're ever really going to change things is by educating people and changing the demand structure significantly. But why would you do that rather than educate them about veganism. Because that's the choice you have. The choice is not between welfare reform or education. Because welfare reform focused on supply is never going to get us beyond the level that we've been at for the past several hundred years, which is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Animal welfare reform has been useless. It has, for the most part, only made the production process more efficient. It has done nothing more than make people feel better about animal exploitation. So if you ever want it to get beyond the level where it's at now, your only choice is education, is by affecting demand. So it's not a question of welfare reform or education. It's a question of what sort of education are you going to do? Are you going to educate people about higher welfare standards so that they, they, they then make it clear to suppliers, hey, look, we'll pay a lot more per pound for that meat. We'll pay a lot more for those eggs. We'll pay a lot more for that milk. Do you want to educate them so that, so that we change the demand structure 
And so that the, the products that are demanded are significantly different. Or do we want to educate people about veganism? That's, a fun, that's the fundamental question. That's the only choice we have. We're either going to educate people to demand, if we, want, if we want welfare standards to go beyond the meaningless nonsense that they've been for the past 200 years, if we want them to go beyond that, then we have to educate, we have to educate people to make demands for significantly higher welfare products. Or we educate people about veganism. But those are our, our choices. And that's a fundamental, that's, that's our choices, education or education. And then we have to decide, are we going to educate people about higher welfare standards? Are we going to educate people about veganism? In my view, we cannot possibly morally justify educating people, taking any resources and, 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 and putting them into educating people about why they should be making demands for higher welfare products. I don't think that could be morally justified and indeed for practical reasons. Once we get people to the point where they're willing to pay what they would have to pay in order to see significant changes in animal welfare, then why not just educate them about veganism if they're willing to go that far, if they're willing to pay for the inherent value of non-human animals. Right now, we don't, our, our welfare standards don't recognize that animals have inherent value. All the welfare standards, all the welfare campaigns, go and read the literature of the welfare groups that are promoting controlled atmosphere killing, elimination of the gestation crate, whatever. I don't care what, what, what reform you're looking at. Go read the literature they're putting out and they make the argument that it's economically efficient to do this. That is a denial of the inherent value of animals. If we want to get people to the point where they're willing to pay out of recognition of the inherent value of animals, they're willing to, they're willing to pay to protect the inherent value of animals once you get them to that point. If, if you could get them to that point, you could get them to veganism. You can get them to that point, but you can get them to veganism. Everybody who's listening to this has had the experience of talking with somebody and causing that person to think about issues and go vegan. We've all had that experience. Think about what would happen if we had a worldwide movement that was devoted to creative, nonviolent vegan education. Think about what that would do in terms of changing the fundamental paradigm, moving animals outside of the paradigm, away from the paradigm of animals as property and toward the notion of animals as non-human persons. The change would be dramatic. So, again, I want to reinforce this idea. I understand this, this intuition that we have that, well, we've got to, you know, got to do something now. I understand that. The problem is that something now is not going to do anything. As, as, like a lot of quick fixes in life, quick fixes, you know, they, they, have an, they have an intuitive plausibility and attraction to them, but they don't work. Animal welfare is a quick fix that doesn't work. It may make money for organizations that promote it, but it doesn't do anything for animals. Animal welfare reform is generally limited to that which will 
increase the production efficiency of animal exploitation and make the public more comfortable about animal exploitation. It doesn't generally go beyond the level of efficient exploitation. That is, the only time we implement animal welfare reform is when we get an economic benefit from doing so. Now, some people say, well, if it's in the interest of industry, why does industry fight when animal welfare advocates propose animal welfare reforms? And the answer is, if you know anything about sociology, you know that there's a dance between industry and, and advocates in any movement, in any situation. Basically, the animal industry will resist anything. The institutional users will resist any sort of change which is proposed. Because if they don't resist, if they don't impose a cost on animal welfare advocates who are, who are making proposals for change, even if those changes are not going to have a, a negative impact or any sort of significant impact on their bottom line, even in those situations in which it will help the bottom line. They have an economic incentive to resist those changes because if they don't, then they may face changes down the line or, de or demands for changes down the line that will have an economic effect where the demand structure hasn't been changed yet and so where industry will be economically threatened. So just because industry resists change doesn't mean that those are good changes for animals. It simply means that's, that's part of the dance. That's part of the drama. That's, you know, they, they go through this rigmarole and then at the end of it, it's, you know, the, the animal people declare victory. The animal exploiters say, you know, hey, we really care about animals. And everybody hugs and has a kumbaya moment. Everybody wins except the animals. This is a drama that has been repeated endlessly in the history of animal welfare regulation. And it continues to be so today. But the fact that industry resists these changes doesn't mean anything about the value of these changes. I would also like to say that, you know, it's interesting that some advocates uh, argued that Proposition 2 in California and the acceptance by voters of Proposition 2 in California represented a recognition that consumers are willing to pay a lot more for animal products. They're willing to pay for the humane treatment of animals. Well, again, if you look at that campaign, you will see that many animal advocates were arguing that Proposition 2 would not significantly affect the price of animal products in California. Proposition 2 does not become effective until 2015, and I can tell you one thing for sure, that if Proposition 2 does have a significant impact on the price of animal products in California, you're going to see all sorts of maneuvers to make sure that Proposition 2 is completely blunted. By and large, animal welfare reform does nothing in terms of increasing production costs. If anything, it makes production costs more efficient. You know, I mentioned before that I've been doing this for decades. And I, re I remember, I, I, I have very vivid memories of 25, 27 years ago, sitting around with animal advocates and having this very discussion and hearing animal advocates say, well, we've got to pursue animal welfare reform if we want to help animals now.
That's actually a view that I shared back then. The bottom line is almost 30 years later, nothing's changed. We're exploiting more animals now in more horrific ways than we ever have. It has not worked. It has not worked because it can't work. It can't work because it's focused on the supply of animals. And there are economic rules that will govern that. There are economic realities that will always limit animal protection as long as we focus on trying to pressure the institutional users to improve animal welfare or to get laws that will cause or force institutional users to improve animal welfare. Politicians in the legal process are not going to force institutional users to do things where there is no general agreement or demand structure that supports that. It's simply not going to happen. The law generally follows social changes, and politicians certainly do. They don't lead. They follow. So as long as the, as the focus is on supply, animal welfare reform will always be limited. The only way you're going to ever change and significantly improve animal welfare is by changing demand, by, by educating consumers to demand higher welfare, significantly higher welfare products. And once you've gotten them to that point where they're willing to pay a lot more money because they recognize that animals have inherent value, then what are we wasting our time for? Why are we doing the immoral thing when we should be educating them about veganism? We've all had the experience of educating people about veganism. We've all seen it can be successful. Imagine what we could do if this were a unified effort. Okay, well, that's what I have to say for World Vegan Day, November 1, 2009. I hope you have taken from it not only some ideas about why welfare reform is structurally defective, it can't work, but I also hope you've taken away from this the idea that the abolitionist movement is growing. We've made tremendous strides in the past year. We need to keep that going. We are building a movement. We are building a creative nonviolent vegan movement. That's a positive thing. That's something we should all be happy about. And I hope that you will all continue to participate in it. Uh, a number of you have asked about when my uh, newest book is coming out. The book, which is called The Animal Rights Debate, Abolition or Regulation, which is being published by Columbia University Press and will involve me in a debate it's a debate-style book in which I defend abolition and Professor Robert Garner of the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom defends the uh, protectionist position. Uh, he and I have a uh, what I think is a vigorous debate, uh, and it's a, uh, I hope that you will uh, learn from the book. And uh, uh, we both have tried to articulate our views as well as we can and as strongly as we can. And it will be up uh, to those people who read the book to decide which position uh, is the is the right position um, in any event. Uh, so that book will be out, uh, I had hoped, in the fall. Unfortunately, it's probably not going to be out. The production process is taking a little bit longer than uh, I had hoped, and so it will be out in the spring of 2010. But I want to thank you for, uh, I've got lots and lots of emails of people interested in when the book's coming out. And as, as we get closer to the uh, release time, 
uh, and the publisher lets me know, I will let you know. But thank you for your interest. In any event, thanks for listening. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's incredibly easy to do. It's better for your health and the health of the planet. But most importantly, most importantly, most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do. If we take animal interests seriously, if animals are members of the moral community, the very least that we can do is not eat them, wear them, or otherwise consume them. If nonviolence means anything, anything at all, it means we cannot justify suffering and death for reasons of pleasure, amusement, or convenience. If nonviolence doesn't have at least that content, it doesn't have any content worthwhile at all. Thanks very much for listening. Visit at www.abolitionistapproach.com or follow me on Twitter. Again, thanks for listening and have a good World Vegan Day.